Welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, where we celebrate the craft of poetry. Each week, we feature interviews with incredible poets and artists, including Olivia Gatwood and A.E. Stallings, and original poetry read by the authors. I'm your host, James Moorhead, poet laureate of Dublin, California, and author of Canvas and Portraits of Red and Gray. Stephen Massimilla is a poet, professor, painter, and author, most recently of the poetry collection Frank Dark, Barrow Street Press, 2022, and the 2022 co-edited Social Justice Poetry Anthology, Stronger Than Fear. His multi-genre, co-authored Cooking with the Muse, Tupelo Press, 2016, won the Eric Hoffer Award and many others. Previous books and honors include The Plague Doctor in his Hull-Shaped Hat, SFASU Press Prize, 40 Years from Yesterday, Bordighera Prize, Cooney, the Grolier Poetry Prize, the Van Rensselaer Prize, selected by Kenneth Koch, A Study of Myth and Poetry, award-winning translations, and more. His work has been featured recently in hundreds of publications, ranging from Agni to Denver Quarterly to HuffPost to Poetry Daily. Massimilla holds an MFA and a PhD from Columbia University and has taught there and at many other schools, currently the new school. He is a prolific artist. Stephen, welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast. Thank you for having me on the show today. I'm really happy to be here. Well, I'm excited to to discuss Frank Dark, such a richly complex book. So I'm going to start with the cover, uh, since you're also an artist. It's striking, it's unsettling, and it sets the tone perfectly for the poetry to come as soon as you crack the cover. How did you approach the cover art, and was that art created specifically for the book or just a happy coincidence? Well, uh, the cover is a self-portrait, so uh, that may or may not be obvious because it's uh, somewhat expressionist, but it's realistic enough so that maybe you could figure that out. And uh, it, 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 for those who are just listening, one eye, it has one eye that's a human eye, and then the, my face or the human face has a lizard face superimposed over it, so there's a reptilian eye on one side and a human eye on the other. And... I had done the self-portrait a little bit beforehand, but the, the the decision to then add the lizard and to create this newfangled version of this self-portrait uh, was made during the production process uh, of the book. And my, um, Myra Kornfeld collaborated with me on that and helped me with some of the technical issues, but... Um, Yes, it's a grim, uh, some people say chilling cover. I actually think it's kind of funny. So. I, I think it's uh, the colors. I'm just looking at it right now. I, mean, I think the colors are striking. Um, I'm looking at it differently now, knowing that it's a self-portrait, which I didn't I didn't pick up on that. I think it's uh, very striking and sets the mood perfectly. So and themes like blindness that come up here are themes in the volume. So uh, there's a lot I could say about the cover, but I don't want to get too distracted by that. Absolutely. Well, before we get to the the poetry in your in this collection specifically, what are some of your poetic influences, and what poets have inspired you over the years to pursue poetry? Well, my poetic influences are are vast. So that's a very broad question. And degrees I've pursued in the pursuit of my doctorate and so forth. And I'm one of those poets who also writes about poetry. 
the poets that I focused on were the high modernists, such as Yeats, Lawrence, um, Eliot, and and also their local American, uh, we'll say counterparts, but they really often didn't get along. William Carlos Williams, I mean, William Carlos Williams, Marianne Moore, and all the way up to James Shiler, there was a, another group of local American modernists, and they were at odds with, with the what I'll call the high modernists, which were the more erudite group. And then there's a group in between of uh, American sublime writers like Wallace Stevens and uh, Park Crane that have had a big influence on me. But, uh, you know, it's hard to say because a lot of the, the the writers that have influenced me are kind of outside that, that framework. Mm-hmm. They range from uh, the the, the uh, Nazim Hikmet to Sonika and Walcott and so forth. Many of them are um, kind of act, operating outside the Anglo-American paradigm. And for this book, a, a big influence was a particular group of poets uh, called the Hermetic Poets. And these include um, Montale and Quasimodo and Ungaretti. And they were... Uh, uh, they were very important to me when I was writing this book because they're they're often compared to the French symbolists, but they're much more introspective. There's a lot of emotional introspection in their work, but it's very pared down. And so they they wrote mostly between the two world wars at a time when history seemed to be going backwards. And so yes, uh, I'm um, and and in their work I, because there are a few poems that are really after that are inspired by some of their work in this volume. So the sounds of words and the symbolic meanings of words very often are as significant as their literal semantic meanings. And so that uh, was important to me when I uh, was writing these poems to be thinking of the the Hermetic po- the poets. Uh, uh, the uh, Hermetismo is, a, is another term for that's the original term. Anyway. Cool. Well, yeah. for, for students of poetry, that's a wonderful list and collection of poets to explore. Your book opens with the poem Aurora and the lines, when the brain is quiet and the night too long with no love, to squint is to wake up images and call them fishhawks, stealing under eyelids in sparse light, long skimming hooks over lines that might mirror their wings. You immediately set a macabre surreal tone reinforced by the cover, infused with the natural world. How did you approach deciding which poem should open Frank Dark? One of those really challenging decisions when constructing a book. Correct. It's always really challenging. And then anybody who's putting a book together, I would say don't spend too much time trying to get that first poem right because it will tend to wither under the stage lights. Mm. So uh, what I did is I had different poems that I cycled through and eventually settled on this one, but it wasn't a decision that I made right away. I had most of the other book in place. And I, I decided that it made sense in the context of the work, where, as I said, there's a the, the theme of blindness and a darkness and illness and so forth comes up. But I decided with Aurora, because I decided to go with this one because it's a, a kind of an inversion of a, a poetry form called the Obad, where you where there's a, the, the poet is waking up in the morning with a loved one, but but here, uh, the first line mentions a night too long with no love, and though the light is coming up, one has to squint to wake up images. So it's about uh, both the poet and uh, both the poet thinking about writing, and also it literally is about fishhawks skimming over the water. 
And the, the verb squint means to, uh, it's something we do actually to see better. But when we squint, we narrow our eyesight. So we narrow our field of vision. And this is um, initially a problem here. So uh, we're trying to see better in this collection. There's a kind of crying out for us to see. And the, and yet, uh, as the poem, as the book progresses, that field of vision widens and widens, but we also have to take in more darkness as well as more light. But mm -hmm. the light is coming up in the beginning, and the poem ends by um, referencing darkness. So those, the, the title of the book is Frank Dark, and yeah. it's not an accident. So the, uh, the order of the poems, this first poem, the cover, it's all carefully orchestrated to work together. Well, I love the, the point you made that uh, the first poem is important, but you don't want to over, over, overthink it or you'll overwork the dough, and as it were. And and that poem may not be such the great poem that leads it if you look at it too much. I, I right. I, when the when this book was accepted by Barrow Street, I, another poem had actually came first. So the decision was made even after that. So, right. you know, I, I would say uh, to anyone putting a book together, don't, 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 don't when you arrange them all on the floor. You just <laughs> sort those poems and uh, get someone else to help you. Don't, don't rely completely on your own subjective judgment because you're too close to the work, but be very careful with that first poem. It's too important. And that's exactly the problem. So I would save it for last. But that's my that's my approach. Great advice. Well, your diction throughout the book is so richly strange, challenging in a good way. In what you don't want to see, you write, my instinct was to try to push my eye up back into the skull, removing the worm, leaving just the hook of hurt in the iris flushed. So how do you think about finding a balance between the surreal and the concrete uh, to both challenge the reader with strangeness, but not challenge them so much that they, they might be lost in the process. And I think that's a very tricky balance to achieve, and you've done it here. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, yes, I want it to be clear. I want, a, I want it to be clear enough to any reader what the poem is about. And yet uh, poetry is such a multifaceted art that it intersects with me for, uh, from, you know, um, in my thinking with philosophy and with visual art and with music, of course. And there, it's, it's a challenge to integrate all these aspects. Mm -hmm. I, I agree about that. And in this poem, um, which has that narrowed field of vision I was talking about, uh, in, in I believe in the section you just talked about, right, it's much more physical. Mm -hmm. um, we're trying to address a, a detached retina by fiddling with the physical eye. But the poem is also about seeing and even making observations on the organ of observation. So seeing ways of seeing. And that's a, a more philosophical point. And it's also about anxiety because um, we're looking at the world through our eyes, and yet when uh, when our vision fails, we get anxious about that, and then we think about how our anxiety can be exacerbating that or be caused by that. And now we're thinking about thinking, and the poem even gets metapoetic because that's when the, the the poem that the that the speaker is reading starts to break apart, and that happens to be a poem about suicide that the speaker is reading. So that's kind of dark humor there. But um, yes, I, I was trying to integrate. A, a, a great deal here. And I think it just helped to have short line breaks uh, that helped me to parse uh, the pieces of the poem. 
and to provide Teresitz as some kind of structure because there's a lot going on. Yeah. Well, the surreal nature, which I brought up a couple times of this poem and the collection, leave interpretation wide open to the reader, even though it's grounded in an idea that you're presenting. Um, what are some of the surprising interpretations you've heard? And I'll throw one out is that I was... Uh, a couple of years ago, I had central serous retinopathy, which is a not uncommon retina condition that results in a sort of a dark circle appearing in your vision and, and it can go away in its own or not. And in my case, it didn't. And I had to have a cold laser shot in my eye. So I was thinking of all that and the motions I was going through at the time. And this dragged on for over a year. And uh, yeah, it's very unsettling when when your vision is affected in some way. And that was certainly bringing that to the surface for me. But what are some of the other interpretations you've heard from readers, um, given that you're, this book is open to be interpreted many different ways? It's really interesting to hear what people say. Uh, one uh, critic responded to the title after having read the book and said that this sounds like Frank Dark. The title sounds like the name of some mysterious gunslinger that has come <laughs> to the American wasteland to administer whatever grim, insignificant justice that he can. And I really like that. That's not what I had in mind, but, you know, so I'm pretty open to people's interpretations to the point where if I had heard that earlier, maybe I would have even gone with it and incorporated those sorts of references in the book itself. So I, I am open to that openness of interpretation because it gets to the uh, what I want to call the 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 the, the dark intent, the, the, the sense in which the book is turning into the darkness and um, look, the, the terms frank and dark themselves are, are they're complementary, but there's tension between them. They, 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 they open up a lot of ambiguity. And so uh, some people see that as a name because the, the frank and dark could be nouns, they could be proper nouns, they could be adjectives. And I wanted that openness, again, influenced by the symbolists and particularly the Hermeticists. I wanted there to be the possibility of reading that many ways. But I had, I had in this case, thought about multiple readings. Cool. You know, the title could suggest bringing the darkness into the light, making it frank. But that's a contradictory notion because you can't see the darkness if you turn it into light. You'd have to see it in all its darkness to make the darkness visible, to steal that, uh, that, that very famous juxtaposition from Milton. Or, but that's a contradictory notion. Or maybe you need to have a dark vision to throw the light into relief because the word Frank, for instance, derives from St. Francis. That's not that important to know that. But and Frank is also the name of someone who got me interested in poetry mm. when I was a teenager. And nobody would know that. But again, there are personal meanings here too. But however you know, however you interpret, and I'm just talking here just about the title. Earlier we were talking about how to interpret poems, but you know, in the name of seeing, however it's understood, there's a lot to be said for steering into the darkness to see better. And in a way, that's the, that's the project on some level. But it's not all that dismal. I mean, it's a celebration of the, mm -hmm. of the iridescences and seductions of life. I wanted this to be exciting. As you said, there's a lot of imagery. I'm very influenced by Lorca in that way and by, uh, you know, Sylvia Plath for the imagery aspect, you know, uh, or even Ellen Bass, the poets that really are visual, because I am an artist. So I wanted it to be uh, this late in the day sky of experience where language and culture and art and the gods and um, all of that, everyone, all of that is on fire with the love of burning itself up. And maybe in that light, you know, we can learn to see better if we just 
approach reality with a little more humility, we might achieve a, a more precise and hopeful view of our damaged humanity. So ultimately, uh, we're seeing uh, possibility in the darkness where we're, we're trying to see better. So that's what I meant in some ways. But I think even there, by giving multiple ter interpretations, I'm showing also that I wanted it to be polyvalent, to have many meanings. Yeah. Cool. Well, in the Hitlerian spring and the accompanying notes, uh, may be curious to look up Montale's poem that in part inspired the poem. What role does research play in your poetry and what research strategies do you share with your students? Because I think many poems that I write and certainly that I read, you can tell that there is a research element that was critical to expanding the imagery and the themes of the poem. Yes, absolutely. And uh, I, I think that's, I think it's important to have a relationship to research, but to not to let that um, do damage to the, uh, the cadence and the evocativeness of the poetry. So uh, to, I'll start by saying something about the poem you mentioned. This poem, The Hilarian Spring, is an adaptation or what, uh, for example, Robert Lowell, who really should be called Robert Lowell, but Robert Lowell uh, called an imitation, which is an adaptation of an earlier poem. And it recalls European fascism during part of the last century as a kind of reference point for the nativist wave, the so-called nativist wave that we're witnessing today. And the speaker in the poem protests and is evoking the struggle of radiance against bleakness and that that theme that I've been talking about, the dark light struggle comes up here. Although admittedly that speaker steps to the side to contemplate uh, a more transcendent possibility or to contemplate what our fate is and to look at the world in a, in a more numinous way and therefore it goes away from, uh, is looking for a non-socio-political solution to a socio-political problem. But, it, but to even address all this, one has to know the history and one has to know that uh, I'm just turning to the poem right now that um, that, for example, uh, there's a, a biblical reference in there that I have to have a footnote about. And the poem is that biblical reference includes a reference to recovery from blindness. And the speaker is addressed to Lizia or Plaiti, which is the sunflower woman in Greek mythology, who is Montale's Beatrice. And this person is also modeled on Irma Brandeis, a glamorous Jewish-American Dante scholar who escaped persecution and death. And saying all that, that was important to me because that ties into my background and uh, my grandmother's family, who, uh, you know, in which everyone was wiped out in the Holocaust, except my grandmother. And then this poem was written at the height of the Trump administration. So all of this ties in, or, you know, they're at the height of the fascist, so-called fascist way we're experiencing now, not in the same way as in, as in, you know, the last century, or I wouldn't say the last century, but in 20th century Europe. Um, but what, what, but to the broader question is then, um, how much can I do this? There's a personal poem called Harvest that also refers not just to the COVID pandemic, but the 1918 influenza pandemic. And in that poem, there's also a reference to, in Bottle Brush, there's something called a germination inhibitor. So did I do research on the plants that I referred to before I wrote the poem? No, I already knew about the germination inhibitor and this poem adopted from Montale, I already knew about the poem. I, I did some more looking into it to, situ to help myself situate it. But what I, what I am is a voracious reader. So I, I am fascinated by everything. Uh, 
Uh, I have degrees in some of these subjects and others I don't. So art history plays into a lot of these poems. Uh, war, there's a term from World War II called the air gap that I used in one of my poems. And I know exactly what that's about. It has to do with um, a location where it's it was very difficult to provide air cover for uh, merchant fleets during World War II. And so they were harried by, by, mm -hmm. by U-boats. But I would only use a term like that if it if it suited the poem. So that's just a cool term, air gap. But I had to already know the history, but I was interested in the term. So I think that has to line up. But as far as the research goes, a lot of it was there to begin with. So a lot of poets know a lot about flora and fauna, for instance. And, I, you know, I, I knew in an early poem that I'll read to you in a little bit that uh, that a pelican can spot a bird I mean, it's just, it's just, you can spot a little fish in the water from 70 feet in the air. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to put that in the poem, but I didn't because that would be too factitious or artificial. It, it didn't come out of the mood of the poem. So I, I describe a pelican matted with oil. But even then, it helps me to know that they're one of the most intelligent birds and that birds are among the most intelligent animals. So flora and fauna, art history, you know, history of war, Eastern spiritual philosophy ties into this book a lot. You know, and a lot of what I know about literature is extraneous, but then it becomes important to a poem like the like the story that inspired Melville's most famous novel that mm -hmm. gets referenced in here. And it's a it's a frightening story that involves cannibalism and so forth. But did I do that research to write the poem? No, um, I tapped into what I knew to write the poem and then I checked the facts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I had the poem and I made sure that any terminology I used was poem worthy. Well, I want to switch to a very short poem. Attempt at Bear Geography is only five lines and very effective. It's so short, I'll read the entire poem. Our first sound is a cry. Then it takes too long to realize we must be quiet to begin to hear the quiet in our lives before the quiet beyond our lives begins. It's a lovely poem, conveys so much so concisely. I personally struggle writing short poems. I'm working with a poetry coach who challenged me once to write micro poems, only micro poems, and limited me to a number of characters as a challenge. And it's something I'm working on. So how did you approach revising and editing this poem? Did it start super short or did it was it longer and it got viciously cut down? And what advice do you have for students when writing short poems? Okay, so that poem comes right after a long landscape poem that's very complicated where we're looking into all these caverns of natural predation. And it felt very important then to follow it with something that, where I could give the reader a breathing space. Mm -hmm. And as I said, the book is informed by a lot of Eastern spiritual philosophy. So I felt that it would be in, uh, there's going to be something inappropriate about getting too wordy in a spiritual poem about uh, how to be quiet and how to enter that space within and beyond the limited confines of the self and um, to get beyond the ego. And so it's a real effort at humility. It's an effort at simplicity. And I, I think that word effort is important in the title. It started a little bit longer and then got pared down further, and then I pared it down further, and then I pared it down. And even then, uh, uh, one of the editors who helped me with the book, once the book was accepted, pared it down a little bit more. So mm -hmm. I wanted to get it down to its absolute bare minimum, bare minimal of essentials. And uh, I do think anybody uh, writing a poetry book should think about that, that counterpoint between long poems and shorter poems, because Readers do need that space to breathe. 
And this is a poem about finding that quiet space uh, in our lives. Uh, so it's very important to uh, make the, uh, I guess Olson and Creeley said that the, uh, that the form of the poem should be an x-ray of its content. And so that's also what I was trying to do here. Yeah, no, this is you're the second poet I've asked about a very short poem. And the second time it was actually a longer poem that got pared down, pared down, pared down. And then there was within all that longer poem, this wonderful, very concise poem. So yes, I think the, another takeaway for students is just don't be afraid of cutting, cutting, cutting. You might be surprised what you end up with after you've done that. Absolutely. So you've got some deliciously morbid, not depressing though, uh, images sprinkled in this book. And one example I particularly liked from Protopos Memento Mori, you wrote, Sparrows brawling in the eaves, as active as those of dreaming poets, the filmy membranes of eyes and bellies, two fetal carcasses, the parents in their spat must have kicked down to my doorstep, were rolling. Rapid eye and bowel movements, fatty blue and bubblegum stomachs already pregnant with maggots buzzed electric in the mid-spring sun. What attracts you to these incredibly rich somewhat unsettling but not depressing images it's like it, they're unsettling and they're morbid but they're not depressing like they're really fascinating images oh thanks uh i guess that's my sensibility i love <laughs> um I, and even though that, that this is an, an observation there really were uh two fetal carcasses of uh baby sparrows on my doorstep and uh, it, it says later in that poem but i'm also when thinking about that, thinking about thinking about it. So later in that poem, the speaker says, you know, I was thinking I could use the images. And then I like that image too, because it's a much more, or it's, I don't know if that's an image, but it's a locution, it's a reflection. Um, so uh, yeah, the, um, th that's a reflection on the natural world, but also a reminder this, 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 this book doesn't romanticize the natural world. I love the transcendentalists, but I'm not, uh, romanticizing nature with a capital M. I mean, little birds get devoured from the inside out. And that leads in the next section of the poem to a reflection on having been in the hospital and mm -hmm. uh, with uh, severe GI problems and having a bunch of uh, a nightmare about a bunch of tubes that are scrambling to get out like tentacles. And so there's a, a combination of a celebration of the natural world and a kind of nightmare uh, uh, about illness. And a lot of these poems are inspired by personal plights, you know, not just personal observations, because a lot of my friends and loved ones have, you know, struggled in the lead up and also during the pandemic with illness and injuries and blindness, neurological impairments, suicidal ideation, all of that, all these reasons for treatment and hospitalization. And this is one of a handful of poems that are literally about people in the hospital and um, how these challenges speak to something broader. I mean, something that I'm thinking of as the, one speaker calls the greater emergency. So I, I guess I'm trying to say that I try to make even small visual observations uh, reflect an entire world and reflect uh, the, so the poems are about the natural world, they're about illness, they're about darkness, they're about um, a passage through that darkness and through death toward compassion and love. But they're also about the writing of poetry, also about, um, I mean, so many things. 
I mean, the image you gave me, if I had to unpack it, I feel it would take too long, actually. <laughs> Sorry. Well, you know, you what? Know. people will have to buy the book and unpack it for themselves <laughs> is what I would advise. <laughs> but but the, the point is just to take it in. You yeah. know, it, 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 as an image, you can if you can see it, if you can visualize it, if you can experience it, you don't have to overanalyze that. Um, and uh, yeah, I like to pack a, light, a lot into a tight space, but I want it to be something you can picture. As an artist, I... Uh, that visual uh, that visual element is really important. Well, it's me. particularly that that passage I read, I assume that it had actually happened and that it was a wonderfully rich description of what happened and that it tapped into the artistic side, the, the painting side of you, which is a skill that has to infuse your poetry in some way. Like you will see things in a different way because you can create them with a paintbrush. Right, absolutely. I, I have a poem in the book called Little Art Plot. And again, you know, that the word art is in the title, but also the word plot, which also refers to the plot of the story, but it also is a place where a dead person lies. And, and there's an image in there of a, a marble leg emerging from a bath of black enamel. And you have to be someone who hangs out in an artist's studio to even come up with an image like that. So a lot of the weirdness, I think, that you're observing comes from my multimedia approach mm -hmm. to... Uh, I, and I actually think this is not unusual among artists. We forget, going all the way back, Michelangelo was a was a, was a poet as well as a sculptor and a painter. And you know, in more modern times, Rossetti was both. Uh, everyone knows about Blake. Not everybody knows E. E. Cummings was a was a visual artist, really good painter. And I bet a lot of the people on your podcast also mention that they're artists, musicians, and so forth. So it, it's really what I love about poetry is its multimedia capacity. Absolutely. Well, before I hand the mic over to you, I'd like you to share some advice for students considering pursuing an MFA in college. What do you recommend to them to get the most out of the experience? I would say even before you start your MFA, have some poems that you can bring in that you're pretty uh, relatively happy with. I didn't do this, but I think it will make it easier to get started if you're not used to the workshop format or even Consider taking a, a make sure you've studied poetry in some former context. For example, uh, you know I had studied with Louise Gluck at you know in college. I was familiar with the workshop format. I had not done this you know just in a one-on-one -on -one way. And it, it really, it depends on what MFA program you you know you you because I, I'm thinking of ones where people sit around in a group and uh, talk about each other's poems. But there are. Uh, low residency MFA programs where the exchange can be run one on one with somebody with the teacher. But if you are in that group situation, I think you should have some prior experience with it because it's not just about writing the poetry, but about learning to turn that into a more social occasion and learning how to accept criticism and to um, how to offer productive criticism. And you know, I'm, I'm just talking about how the mechanics should be thought about in mm. advance uh, and. Uh, Try not to go in with a with too sensitive an ego because you'll learn a lot more if you're open to criticism uh, and you're open to trying new things and you really don't care too much what people think because it won't matter too much while you're in the MFA program. But, you know, poets are, uh, people who are inclined toward poetry tend to be very sensitive. So, and they tend to, <laughs> to pursue that MFA when they're young. Otherwise, do it when you're a little older because you'll be more mature about it, you know, as another solution. Uh, I, again, I'm giving a multifaceted answer to your question, but I'd say prepare for it, uh, attend for the process, uh, and uh, and uh, focus on just writing the best work you can, but don't focus on 
coming away with something that you think is fantastic. I mean, that could happen, but focus on the process as much as the product. And, uh, you know, learn to uh, both give and receive gracious criticism, and then you'll really enjoy it. Excellent. Well, now I'm going to turn the mic over to you to read selections from your book, Frank Dark. The first poem I'm going to read, and I'll just read very few poems, but the first one is called Getaway. And this poem takes place outside New Orleans, as we're told in the in the opening. And um, I think uh, one point I'm just making, probably for some random reason, is that this book is all over the map, even though it's moving uh, emotively and uh, in terms of narrative in a, in, in a consistent way. Uh, we're going to move from here to uh, poems about Los Angeles and even Scotland. So uh, we're not going to stay in New Orleans, but that's where we're starting. And uh, here we are entering a, 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 a dim-lit landscape, getaway. Outside lockdown New Orleans, pre-dawn high beams reach through long, dead, blonde grass. A metaphor is not a crime scene. A dreamer is not a detective, for one thing. Island lit from inside, hard to enter where the pelican swims out, beating wings matted, emulsified. The half smile of a fish's wake in fluid poison tears no seam of sky. No plane passes no bird. It's a shame to lose this scenic route. Asterisk, veins are greener than arteries. As on old maps, each line travels alone into the morning, down sandy trails as shaky as a phantom's scarred forearms at dusk. When and where the light defines its pattern of flux, the only reliable fact in all that loss and mendacity On this dock, a close, skeletal moss of minutes kindling. The way forward is the way back and is not safe. So I'm not going to say a whole lot about this poem, but I'm just going to point to something odd about the circulatory system of the work where the way forward is the way back and is not safe. There's an image here uh, a little bit earlier that I just read to you about how the veins in arms, they resemble lines on maps that then become, uh, take us down landscape paths that in turn are compared to literal veins in arms again. So, but but now that these are the arms of phantoms. So there's this, there's a, a deathly, way in which the the, the figures of speech work, uh, that where a simile takes us, uh, a simile contains another simile that then takes us back to the first comparison. And and that has something to do with the sense of entrapment that um, the poem describes, because an early adjective here is locked down, and obviously this is taking place during the the COVID pandemic. So... um, you know, there's all of that. And there's also an effort to find some kind of pattern in all the all the loss and flux of which reality seems to be constituted, of which, you know, even the self seems to be constituted. So those are themes 
in, in that poem. The next poem, as I, I mentioned, uh, takes place again. It's still in the first section of the book, but this one takes place in Los Angeles, where I had to spend a good deal of time during the pandemic. And this poem was something that I already had started before the pandemic, but a lot of what happens in this book really came together um, during that time. And um, uh, just to preface it, there's a speaker here who's addressing an unknowable entity. There's an apostrophe to a seagull, and it's not a postcard seagull. It's not quite the flying rat of the city that we sometimes think of. It's something in between, but this is... The speaker is an artist who, who is an outsider and, and is striving, is woundedly reaching out for connection, visibility, and recovery. And all of this is very real to the speaker, but the, what the speaker is addressing involves a certain amount of aspiration that toward the imaginary, even though it's a real aspiration uh, and it affirms the role of art, it's still illusion, self-consciously so, like everything else in LA or almost everything in LA has that element. So. Map of scars, and Los Angeles feels huge. To my uncharted goal, wavering district gunned with lights, delirious veined streets opening treacherously between gas clouds listing against the ocean, so many black stars as the heat sinks and glisters into listlessness where is the nearest hospital sign? When will I learn to read the airbrush deity on the universal billboard lounging up there, a cream pink lemur of wasted paper stuck together, eyeing sleepless escalators, noiseless crushes, cars. It goes on and on and I, the scavengers double, having fiddled with oblivion, quitting this shore, lifting over the ships, the persistent hiss of waves haven't gone under. Not yet. I've never seen the watchtower. Do not know the junkie's name tapped out elsewhere on a cell phone ditched on the beach. Tell me, fellow, dirt gray feather shedder, filthy artist, poisoned loiterer, among breaths without bodies? Are we tired of not shining on heaven's silver X-ray screen? Does your brain whirl with this distance, the old damage between us, wherever you are, whatever you are? So there's this gap between perceiver and perceived, and there's the impossibility of knowing, but the speaker does not go under. Still, the speaker cannot read the uh, airbrushed deity on the universal billboard, but maybe you don't need to be able to read that. I mean, by the way, reading and writing in these poems are exercises in scripting oneself. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to read one more poem. It's, uh, it, it, it shows up late in the book, and the poem I just read, in, in that poem, the form and the content were important. It was important that they emerged together. It, it is not a formal poem. The, the lines are what, I, what I'm going to call title lines. There's no term for that in poetry. But the uh, there's the the, the 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 there are the waves in the west shore of LA hitting hitting the, the the coast of the city, and there are waves of smog and traffic. 
And I was thinking of that in this kind of aerial map, and I wanted the lines of the poem to be precariously uh, arrayed on the page. The poem I'm reading now is a tight sonnet. It's a formal, very constructed piece with a traditional rhyme scheme, and it follows it pretty closely. And, you know, one of the multifaceted muses, as Rilke called it, is rhyme, and uh, that's one of the muses in this poem. So this is a much more... Uh, traditional poem, but the themes are consistent with the poem I just read. Uh, there's the same movement through the darkness. Northern anniversary. Willow banks of Scotland are phantom fountains thinned in wind. Coal black spires of Glasgow with still whispering near stacks. Hills and mountains mooned in green halos. The last sky now behind us. Blue mist fills our quiet terrace as we stare down toward a blooded maze of walls under bells that cloak the orange sun in blackness. Friend to itself, but otherwise odd. What appalls is her whisper. It is sober. And the gas lamps float in schools, no hopes, no flagrant dead. I wish I could tell her that what stamps out the fire was wine that had gone to her head. And so remind us, don't survive, relax. As winter closes in behind our backs, Wonderful. It is one of my favorite parts of each of these interviews is hearing the poems read by the voice of the author. So just uh, one, uh, one or two more questions. Map, okay. of, Map of Scars is a noticeable break in form visually with an almost chaotic use of white space, hints at addiction. How did you approach visualizing this poem and deciding where to place this poem in Frank Dark given the, the nature of the visual break? can relate it to what you said about addiction. And by the way, this is just a side note, but the speaker is not me. I'm projecting myself onto a character. But for those who don't know, I mean, Emily Dickinson said, when I say I, I mean not myself, but a supposed person. <laughs> yeah. and, and I knew I wanted addiction in addition to alienation and blindness and blight and injury and suicide and death and grief and underworld ghosts, you know, there are a lot of ghosts in these poems. I knew mean, I wanted that theme in there. I wanted all the themes that are important to, to be laid out early in the collection, and then they uh, get developed later. But, um, yeah, I think uh, that after poems like the, the one you talked about, uh, What You Don't Want to See, where everything's clearly divided into tercets, uh, and uh, and a lot of the poems are in couplets, but there aren't that many poems, you know, uh, and, and then we get up to this one, which is the first one, Map of Scars, where there are onesies. There, there are single lines that kind of break off from the rest. But even when I have couplets, uh, as in that poem I read, You Get Away, it's, it, it's, I said, it, it's just an effort to provide some structure to a, a description of, of, of the evanescence of existence and how... You know, there might be a pattern to all the change, but all there is is change, as Heraclitus said, you know, as the Buddhists believe. Uh, but the Buddhists see it optimistically that this could be liberating and get out of ourselves. But, but there's something precariously uh, precarious about not knowing where you're going. And so we got to this map. I thought this is the place 
uh, to lose the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a very important poem for the very end of the of the collection called Misdirection, a poem. And so direction in this book involves misdirection. But th- that's how you get where you're going. You have to lose the way. That's the only way to really uh, uh, tackle the darkness. And so uh, there's the word where, which just comes out of nowhere. Uh, and uh, there's this line, it goes on and on and I, that just pops in and hovers like a seagull above the lines under it, that place where the cell phone gets ditched on the beach, that phrase on the beach just drops down and gets ditched in the poem. So again, form and content working together, but it was very important to me to uh, offer the reader the, what I'm going to call the rapture and the dread of what these line breaks have to offer. You know, all the interruptions and the dislocation and the, you know, there's also an element of propulsion where you can just indent a line and, and this allows for all kinds of corollary significations. So it's very important to focus on line breaks. And this is a poem where, you know, the line breaks are not stations of the cross as they are in some other poems. <laughs> the, the line breaks here uh, are organic and the, and the poem is, 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 uh, is, is visual and oral and also um, musical, but a lot of the breaks had to happen intuitively, imitating the tidal uh, effects of 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 the sea and the and the and the and the smog and the traffic in LA. Wonderful. Well, just to close, what are you working on now? What's up next? In addition to talking about Frank Dark, uh, my goodness, you know what? A lot of people say when when you have a book out is, uh, "What other books are you writing right now?" And I, I I actually do have some you know an earlier project, but it has been sidelined. I have not only Frank Dark, but I came out this year also with another book, uh, which is an anthology of uh, in my bio that you read, it's described as a social justice anthology, but the full title is Stronger Than Fear, Poems of Empowerment, Compassion, and Social Justice. And a uh, whole other topic we don't have time to talk about. But the argument for this book is that poetry can make a difference and mm-hmm. that poetry can engage elegantly and musically and powerfully and often ambiguously and personally, sometimes more directly with sociopolitical issues. And... Um, it's uh, so I have this anthology of sociopolitical and poems. Poems also about compassion, education, social justice out, which I co-edited with Carol Alexander, and I'm also I'm promoting that. I'm also promoting this uh, book, Frank Dark, and so I, I'm spending my time on podcasts and in other <laughs> other uh, other venues, other arenas, other contexts right now. But I do have another manuscript uh, that is uh, that is waiting for me to return to it. You know, uh, writers always have more than one monster in a box. Absolutely. <laughs> well, thank you so much for spending a few minutes on the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast today. I thoroughly enjoyed your book, Frank Dark, and I strongly recommend it to everyone listening. And best of luck with uh, Frank Dark and everything else you have going. Thank you so much, James. I really enjoyed uh, being here today. And I, I, uh, I think that what you're doing is fantastic. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast is written and produced by James Moorhead. You can follow me on Twitter at Dublin Ranch, subscribe to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, and follow us on viewlesswings.com or on Instagram at viewlesswings. <laughs>